Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV Radio in Waterbury, Vermont, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic, and today... As usual, we're talking politics, but not the legislature and not the usual stuff. We're going to go behind the scenes and get the inside personal story from the campaign manager for newly elected Congresswoman Becca Ballant. Her name is Natalie Silver, and she will be joining us at 915 to take us inside that campaign and how... A, a, a fairly unknown state senator, senator named Becca Ballant, uh, came out of nowhere, won a tight Democratic primary and in convincing fashion, and then won the general election to make history, um, winning a seat in Congress from Vermont. It's often that you get to talk to the candidate, uh, herself, which we, we have done and we will do again. But I like to go behind the scenes and talk to the people who actually are in the trenches uh, doing the work, and we will get that uh, in at the 9.15 hour. We will also talk to our Washington correspondent, Bob Nay, about TikTok and other things, all things D.C. We'll talk to him about the non-arrest in the world of Donald Trump, not to mention the latest poli- political argument over the most boring issue in the world, the debt ceiling. We'll talk to Seven Days reporter Chelsea Edgar about the state's motel program uh, that houses people in poverty and experiencing homelessness. Um, the issue there is motel owners having received millions of dollars from the state, uh, in some cases are not paying back the security deposit when the resident leaves the motel. Chelsea will join us at 10.15. We will take your calls at 10.30. Open phones. This is your chance. 10.30. Open phones. 244-1777. Email vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We are live on the radio and streaming on the web at wdevradio.com. I don't say that enough. You can stream this show on the radio. WDEVradio.com, and I'm your host, Kevin Ellis. But first, some headlines. The former president and CEO of the J. Peak Ski Resort, who was termed by a federal judge the front man for the largest fraud in the state's history, is being released from prison after serving roughly half of his 18-month sentence. Bill Stanger, 74, was released Wednesday from a federal medical center in Devons, Massachusetts, and was back home in Newport. His release was uh, reported by WCAX after his son, Andrew Stenger, posted about it uh, on Facebook. There's a changing society, if you ever heard one. A son announcing his father's release from a federal prison on Facebook. Uh, Bringing the big man home today, the son said, with a photo of the two men smiling. Um... I will immediately uh, get a request in Stenger to come on this show. As you know, Stenger was uh, was the the lead personality in a 
in the EB-5 scandal, um, along with his uh, partner uh, Ariel Quiros and other folks who are also have been also charged with federal crimes. Uh, Stenger is out, and I'd love to hear you. Uh, I'd love to hear your calls in the 10:30 hour about whether Stenger served enough of a sentence. Was he punished enough? Was he guilty? Um, that uh, that saga never seems to end. Um, the Vermont Senate and the Vermont House are 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 on a collision course when it comes to the child care slash paid family leave bill. Uh, to pay for the, to pay for creating the family leave program, Democrats in the Vermont Senate are proposing to axe an anti-poverty benefit they only created last year. Uh, S-56, the Senate's, the session's major child care, care bill, uh, has been advanced out of the Senate Finance Committee. All five Democrats voted in favor, while the lone Republican on the committee, Senator Randy Brock of Franklin County, voted against. To fund the bulk of the price tag, lawmakers are leaning on a payroll tax. But to bring down the cost of that new tax, the panel is recommending to repeal Vermont's new child tax credit, which gives a thousand bucks per child, five and under, to families making $125,000 or less. Uh, the latest figures from the Legislative Joint Fiscal Office estimate. The parental leave and enhanced child care subsidies contemplated in the bill would cost roughly $160 million starting in 2025. I know that Republicans are complaining about uh, the cost of this as well as the creation of 45 to 65 new state employees in the straight state uh, in the state treasurer's office. Um that, uh, th- this is, and, and the Senate has a different view of this bill than the House does, and well-meaning, well-intentioned, and very smart people on both sides of this argument. Uh, the Senate says it's, the House version's too expensive. The House says that the Senate version doesn't go far enough. And, uh, we will, uh, we're gonna see where that goes, but, I'll tell you, before, as I've said before on this show, and Joe in Northfield, we will get to your call in, uh, very quickly right now, but uh, we most people like to talk about whether the governor will veto uh, bills and whether a Democratic supermajority can override the governor's veto. Uh, governor's a, a smart political tactician, and he knows, as you do now, that the Democratic Party is going to have its own uh, come-to-Jesus moment with each other long before they get to the governor, and that is happening right now. If you're if you're a political junkie and you're interested in this, follow Seven Days, follow VT Digger. Uh, it, it's all on there. Uh, get on Twitter, and a lot of the inside story is there. But we will give it to you on this show as deep as we can get it every time. Before we take our first break... Uh, we've got a quick call from Joe in Northfield. Joe, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good. Welcome. Good. Uh, in regards to whether Stanger should be out of jail, uh, no. He should have been been underneath the prison as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> the guy stole all that money from those people, and those people never got any of their money back. Only ones that made any money off this was the government when he, they fined him 
however much money when they find him. And as far as him, he's not the only one. Shumlin knew about what was going on. Those those guys are all in on it too. Why do you think he buried all the paperwork? They all know what knew what was going. on. They were all making money off this stuff. They all knew what was going on. They had to throw him right in jail along with Shumlin and about half those other ones that were involved in it too. As far as I'm concerned, Joe. Thank you for the call. That's really interesting. So, Joe, if you're still listening, uh, we we you know he, we dropped uh, Joe, but that's okay. He's listening in his in his car or truck. Joe, uh, <coughs> excuse me. First thing I'm going to do after this show is I'm going to call Stenger and invite him on the show. Secondly, uh, let's get Alan Keys, the reporter from VT Digger, who's been following this from the beginning. Uh, let's get him on the show and talk about this because there's a point of view. Uh, as Joe said, he should be uh, still in prison, but not in a cell. He should be underneath the prison, which uh, thank you, Joe, for the call. We'll get to that. Okay, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back. And as I said, uh, we're going to get the inside story of the Becca Ballant campaign from its campaign campaign manager, Natalie Silver. I'm Kevin Ellis. Your host today and every Wednesday and Friday, and you're listening to VT Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Our guest, Natalie Silver, uh, who is the, was the campaign manager for Becca Ballant, uh, is detained and is not able to be with us at the moment. So what we're going to do is pivot and open the phones, 244-1777, and you can talk to me about anything you want. Uh, I'm going to talk about TikTok because TikTok's CEO, Xiao Chu, appeared before a House committee yesterday about TikTok's uh, relationship or lack thereof with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government, which are one and the same, um, and faced a barrage of questions from both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, I got to say, not a good day for Mr. Chu, but as usual, not a good day for the United States Congress, uh, who... Uh, cut the guy off in mid-sentence, angrily demand yes or no answers, um, and uh, and ask re- sort of not substantive but ridiculous questions like, does TikTok spy on Americans for the Chinese government? If you don't think that the Chinese government uh, uh, has uh, all the information – from TikTok on uh, its American users. I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Um, of course they do. And for anyone to think otherwise is, uh, well, I'd love to have you call in. 244-1777. I'd love to hear that side of the argument. But um, uh, so the Biden administration is considering uh, banning the use of TikTok, um, forcing its sale, and uh, uh, you know that leaves 
the CEO, Mr. Chu, in a tough position as he struggled to cast TikTok as an independent company that wasn't influenced by China. Quote, ByteDance, the parent company, is not owned or controlled by the Chinese government. <clears throat> it is a private company. So I've been in these meetings before. So let me tell you how this works. So the C- when the CEO of a of a company like this uh, that's in the middle of controversy uh, goes before Congress, here's what happens. Uh, they hire about five PR firms, uh, one of which specializes in crisis communications and congressional testimony preparation. Imagine it like a Supreme Court justice going before the Senate Judiciary Committee for confirmation. It's the same thing. You get in a room and the CEO spent, comes to D.C. and spends weeks uh, holed up in a fancy hotel and the team assembles and presents to that CEO and his team an agenda. And uh, and they go through every question that Congress might might ask. And it's called a murder board, which is an outdated term that we should stop using, I think. Uh, and uh, he prepares uh, for the testimony. But in some level, there is no there is no amount of preparation. Uh, as the old saying goes, when you you're, you're trying to make chicken salad out of chicken, you know what. And uh, with TikTok. You just can't get away from the facts uh, that uh, it's impossible for a Chinese company uh, not to be influenced slash controlled by uh, the Chinese government. It just doesn't happen. Uh, so anyway, uh, we will we'll get more deeply into that, uh, but let's take a quick call on our open phones day from Fred. Welcome to the show, Fred. How are you? Now, that's one of your problems. You make the calls too quick. Hey, look, there's a new bill that's coming up, and it's called the Hearing Protection Act. And uh, probably won't get out of committee. But you, nobody knows about it either. I just fell upon it. Fell in upon it when I was uh, on Google. And the Hearing Protection Act says that uh, silencers and mufflers on uh, firearms, they're going to take it off the weapons list. In other words, a, a, a silence is considered a weapon. And, of course, a silence is not a weapon. It's an addition to your firearm. So, anyways, they're going to remove it. So, I'm wondering if you think that's a good idea. And, oh, when they say remove it, that means that you can go out and buy a a uh, one of these uh, so-called silencers, and you don't have to have a permit from the government, and you don't have to pay a two hundred dollar tax. But, uh, what do you think? So uh, I'm I'm confused. What's the question again? Well, the question is, they, they're taking the, these so-called silencers, and they're going to say they're not a weapon. They're not a weapon. That's the whole point. The government has a law that says silencers are considered a weapon, and they're not a weapon. It's quite obvious. And so the the, the 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 bill is going to, you know, take it off so that you and I 
to buy a silencer without a government permit, and we don't have to pay a government $200 tax on it. Huh. So they're going to make it less expensive, basically, to own a silencer. And a silencer has nothing to do with, a, with you know, it's, it's, not, it's not considered a gun. It's an addition, you know, like sure. a plane. Sure. So anyways, what do you think? You, how close do you think this is going to get to be passed? Uh, are, is this in the Vermont legislature or in the United States Congress? No, this is a national. This is a national. In Vermont, you can have a silencer on your gun, but it's a it's a uh, it's a national law. This won't. So the, federal, yeah. the federal, the ATF says, in order to buy a silencer, you have to pay a tax two hundred dollars, and then you have to do a permit. And the permit can take as long as uh, six months to get. You know, so they want to eliminate this. They want to make it. You know. You know, more convenient to have a silencer to take it off the weapons list. It's not a weapon. Right. I don't know. It's not complicated. It's a, it's a good question. Uh, you're deep into gun control and, and gun issues. And at some level, that's above my pay grade uh, because, man, you got to study this stuff closely. And I – the, the whole gun rights, gun control uh, debate is uh, so, so difficult, and nothing reflects the, the dysfunction of the United States Congress more than their inability uh, to come together in a, uh, in a consent, in a, in a, to a consensus around uh, how you uh, stop uh, Mass shootings in movie theaters, schools, etc. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like that ought to be the top priority. And you sort of start from there. Clark in Plainfield, what's going on? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I'm here. Hey, um, this is off topic, but it's uh, a dear topic to me as a uh, proud father of five in this this state of Vermont. <clears throat> And as a a proud European man, I was a little older when I had kids. And I'm very concerned about um, this teaching our children uh, gender confusion, which is an illusion never to be attained. It's child abuse to me. It's human rights abuse as well. And I would promote that we, a little strong words here, but with respect, jail the doctors who cut off excuse me, our reproductive organs of our children. Jail the teachers who preach this. Fact. Boys are boys. Girls are girls. End of story. Save our children. That's my agenda for today. Okay. Thank you for the call. Uh, not to, you know, Fred goes uh, deep into the, into the marrow of uh, gun issues and Clark's going deep into the marrow of, uh, of transgender youth and all of the issues around it. And again, these are tough ones. Clark, call your legislator. Uh, gosh, who is the legis, who is the house member from Plainfield? I'm going to, it's not Avram Pat. It's, uh, God, it's from Callis. It might, well, and it's not Mark Mahali. Uh, I, I'll come up with it. I will come up with, uh, your, your house rep and call your, uh, three senators, Ann Cummings, Andy Perchlick, and Ann Watson and talk about this because, uh, it's on people's minds. It's in the newspaper. Uh, it's in the, the issue is being dealt with in schools and it's not an easy one. I would, uh, I would, 
you know, and I think there's a place where people of goodwill can come together here, and that is this. These children are just that. They are children. And whatever's going on in their heads, uh, we need to be there as adults to be supportive. Uh, you know, these are tough, tough issues as our society and technology evolves. Uh, we're going to keep tangling with it and we're going to keep dealing with it. And it's going to put the burden on us adults to act like adults. And too often we don't do that. So Clark, keep reading, talk to your legislators and, uh, and keep at it. Uh, so we're, <laughs> we are going to head towards a break and see if we can raise Natalie Silver uh but I don't think we're going to get her. So for that, I apologize. When this happens, when a guest uh, has to cancel, it's usually for a very good reason. And so what? It gives us a chance to talk about the news and it gives us a chance to talk to you. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll go to Bill in Moortown. Bill, you've got 15 seconds. Hey, that's about all I'm going to need and probably you'll shut me off. But let me tell you something on this hunting and buying weapons. Uh, this I had got my first hunting license at seven years old, and I've hunted almost every year in Vermont or some state. I'm retired from the military, and I, the weapon is made to kill. And as soon as these children are learned, taught that at home, the better off that they will be. Okay. Bill, i got to go. Thank you very much for the call. We're going to take a break, and uh, we will be right back. You're listening to Kevin Ellis on VT Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. Those were, we just got three good calls. I'm not sure that I understood the last caller, but I want to go back to Clark in Plainfield. Uh, Clark, your representative is Mark Mahali, and he lives in Callis, but he represents Plainfield and Callis. Good guy. He's on the House Appropriations Committee. Go to the Vermont Legislature's website. His phone number is listed on the website, and as is his email. Send him an email. Tell him I sent you. We're all about democracy on this show. Um, and as to the last call, I could not quite figure out, and that's what's great about this show, where the caller was coming from, whether he wants guns in the hands of young people at an early age so they learn about the uh, danger of weapons or whether he does not want guns in the hands of young people. Uh, and boy, he's he's put his finger on a really interesting issue in Vermont, and I spend a lot of time thinking, talking, and writing about culture, and he's, his finger is right on the button of a culture change in the state, whereas he grew up with a gun in his hands at a very early age, and he learned to hunt, and he learned the power of that weapon in a time when there were a lot fewer people in the state and uh and at a time when the power of those weapons was much less than it is today i doubt that when he was a child that 
his father put an AR-14 in his hands. He put a deer rifle in his hands. Uh, there's a difference. And we as a society need to deal with that. And now as our society evolves and modernizes with technology, we have more powerful weapons. We have social media and we have, uh, Facebook and we, and, and, and we have, uh, a United States Congress that, that seems unable to craft common sense solutions around this stuff. Uh, so you put all that in a bowl and stir it together and you've got exactly what the caller, uh, was calling about. So Michael from Cabot, you are on the show. Happy Friday. Welcome. Happy Friday to you as well. So I'm going to try to collect all of these calls that have come in this morning and kind of put them in the same bowl, as you say. Do it. So as, so go, we'll go back to TikTok, and I think that you're absolutely right that we can't deny that that information has been being collected not only by, you know, a Chinese government, but anybody that has access to the Internet. You know, so we go, we go down the street, and we get a ticket in the mail for running a stoplight. We go through the Easy Pass, and they have a picture of us going through the Easy Pass so they can send us a bill in the mail. So there's no denying that that information is being utilized. And with TikTok, I think, you know, it's the detriment to it is more how it influences our youth to think that that's a a good means of um, a way of spending their time. Yeah. You know, we, we, we talk about mental health and we talk about all these other things, but our society's gotten to a point where the new social norms, you know, the divorced parents, the, you know, the abusive stepdad or whatever the case may be, is just kind of like, oh, well, it's broken. We'll get a new one. And, and you know, a lot of it has to do with our, our education and how we aren't exposed to certain things. You know, I have a I have a nephew that, you know, he gets bullied at school. He, he's a he's a Puerto Rican American kid, and he, you know he, he's overweight and he doesn't like to go to school. And there's nothing anybody can do about it because the teachers have to be politically correct. He's embarrassed to say anything because then he may be in the wrong. And so a lot of it's how do we how do we communicate with each other, you know, and, you know, TikTok's one thing, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, they're all the same thing. They're all influencers. It's all coming from another another source of uh, what direction they think our our norm should be, you know, and, you know, I'd even tie electric vehicles into it. You can't travel over 200 miles in a day or a day and a half on an electric vehicle. That means for me to go to Virginia and see my kids, I gotta, I gotta have three days just to get there. So now I gotta stay home or find a different way to, to travel. Right. And so, you know, and I think you're right with the, uh, with the gentleman that called in with the, with the gun is that he's saying, he's saying the sooner we could teach these kids how to use them appropriately, the, the sooner they'll stop aiming them at each other. Right. That was, that was the gist of what I got out of, he said in the, in the brief moment that he, that he was on. But I think that we, we really have to talk more about the direction of what our society wants out of our future for, for, for our youth, especially because, you know, when I was, you know, I'm about, I'm 41. And when I was 
16, I couldn't, you know, 15 years old, I got my permit the day I turned 15. I got my license the day I turned 16. I graduated the day I turned 18. I moved out before I was 18. And now everybody stays home until they're, you know, 30, give or take, depending on, you know, what their their direction in life is. You know, it's just as easy to stay home and, you know, live with the parents. And, of course, with housing and all the other stuff that comes into it, you don't necessarily have the same opportunities. But that starts at the top of the chain, too, as what we're being influenced with. And I think that's that's the bigger conversation is who are these influencers, whether it be China or Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, Elon Musk or or the legislature could be any of them. Yeah, they all have their own. They all have their own agenda. Uh, Michael, thank you for the call. Uh, I lo- you're you're putting a mighty big stick in a big bowl of stew and stirring it around, and I love it. It's great. Uh, please call in again. Uh, my only comment would be. Uh, I and this is my uh years of hanging around the legislature. For me the legislature really uh puts forth a good faith effort to do what's right. Uh, obviously they all have different opinions. Uh they they come from different cultures, different towns, different backgrounds. Uh they really try to do the right thing. I know a lot of them and I'm telling you that's the truth. Uh, the difference with the legislature is that they don't do what they do for the money. And where I totally agree with you is that on the influencer piece, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, he can tell you that he's doing it because he wants to bring society closer together. Uh, make no mistake, he's doing it for the money. He's doing it to create the biggest uh, colossus of of modern communication that he can create. And it's the same with the TikTok people and it's the same with Instagram and it's the same with everybody else. And let's not be fooled about it. Let's be honest about it. Um, and that's okay. That's the system that we have created. And if we don't like what Facebook is doing to us, and it is doing something to us. Uh, I'm off it, frankly. Uh, although I do, I mean, I, I haven't shut it down. I'm a total hypocrite when it comes to Facebook. I monitor things. I like to track my, the goings on of college classmates and old friends. But, uh, but I'm generally off it, uh, because I know what that information's being used for. But again, I mean, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. So it's uh, there is hypocrisy to go around on these issues uh, enough to sink a ship. But thanks for the call. Brian from Eden, uh, go ahead. Welcome and hey, happy Friday. Hey, with the gun stuff, but I just have a quick comment. Um, go for it. I taught middle school for 25 years, and I guess, uh, you know, the previous caller talking about when he was young and, and, you know, the comment was made that, you know, for Mark's changing and that was the old days type thing. But there is a strong, the, the most responsible, wonderful kids I ever had in school had guns, went hunting. Yeah, it's sure. still a strong gun culture up here. And I think the biggest factor that people overlook, and believe me, there's a hundred studies saying I'm wrong, uh, mainly funded by big uh, video game corporations. 
those video games, the day after a shooting, a school shooting, I'd ask my class and say, how many of you guys shoot somebody on a video game yesterday? About half the hands would go up. I'd say, how many of you people have shot 100 people last couple of days? Five or six hands would stay up. Um, it, it's, it de- there's something about these video games aiming at the target. They play for hours and hours. It creates little tracks in their brain where it's okay to take a human target, pull the trigger. It also dehumanizes the target. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, okay. Brian, thanks for the call. Um, Brian from Eden, always always thoughtful. Always thoughtful calling in from Eden, which is, by the way, I get Eden and Walden confused, you guys. Somebody call in and set me straight. Eden and Walden are both kind of north of Cabot. I go to Cabot. And then I keep going through town. I go up the hill and I kind of bear right to go to Walden. And then I get a little Eden sort of off to the left. But you're welcome to call back in and set me straight. Uh, we're going to take another break. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to VT Viewpoint. And we'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Friendly Pioneer live radio on WDEV. We are back. We're doing an open phones day. Uh, we are uh, going to be talking to Bob Nay from Washington, D.C. at 10 o'clock and then Chelsea Edgar from Seven Days at 10.15. Uh, and uh, we might have a mystery guest or two uh, in the in the second hour. Um, we were talking about TikTok earlier and how – and I was describing – for you how uh, these CEOs prepare for appearances before congressional committees. Uh, you're not going to like it, but here's what happens. Uh, their, their goal is to get out of that congressional committee unscathed, and they hire a bunch of PR firms to lob questions at the CEO um, so that they are ready for the questions that come to them from Members of Congress. In this case, uh, unlike most issues where you got Republicans on one side and Democrats on the other, the two parties are kind of, uh, kind of together on this TikTok issue. Uh, both parties are afraid of China. Uh, we are headed into a, uh, we're already in a competition with China and many, many fear that we are headed into a cold war with China. Um, and, uh, so both, both people on both sides of the aisle are, are concerned that, uh, TikTok is, uh, is uh, spying on Americans, taking their private information and giving it to the Chinese Communist Party. Hello? Here's the, as I said before, enough hypocrisy to go around here. But um, if if Congress is worried about the Chinese government uh, utilizing Americans' private information to spy on them and gain a competitive advantage and strategic advantage over the United States, uh, they've got a couple of companies in their backyard that are doing exactly the same thing. Facebook does exactly this. Don't trust me. Uh, uh, read. I, I will come up with the name of the book uh, from that Harvard uh, law professor about surveillance capitalism. Uh, but if you are, uh, it's pretty clear. If you're on Facebook 
or Instagram or, or Twitter, or even if you are buying from Amazon or buying from L.L. Bean. Okay. There was a day when I said to myself many years ago, there's no way I'll ever give my credit card to L.L. Bean to buy a pair of shoes. Well, that, that day came and went. Uh, if you, you know, Congress knows that Mark Zuckerberg at Instagram and Facebook are taking your private information and utilizing it to sell you more information. Now, some of our callers out there would go the next step, which is to say that Mark Zuckerberg is sharing that private information with the United States government so that the government can exercise certain controls over the citizenry. Uh, I'm not willing to go that far, but uh, there's a ton of reading out there uh, for us to do about the subject. Uh, but the, the TikTok CEO, Mr. Chu, uh, is getting hammered in the American press. Um, it, it's interesting, though. I'm not sure that the American press quite knows what to do about this. Um, you know, here's Lindsay, here's Lindsay Gorman, the head of the technology and geopolitics at the German Marshall Fund and a Biden administration, a former Biden administration official. Uh, the future of TikTok in the U.S. is definitely dimmer and more uncertain today than it was yesterday. It's not just one side of the aisle clamoring for TikTok to address these national security concerns. And now it's coming from all sides. But my warning is this. Uh, it's easy to beat up on TikTok because they are the big target. But, uh, but don't, don't be fooled. Uh, if you're on, if you're on Twitter and Instagram, the same thing is, a, a similar thing is going on. Uh, and as I say, there's a plenty of hypocrisy to go around because I'm on Twitter and Instagram in a, in a fairly aggressive way. Um, so, uh, Bill Stanger, uh, by many lights, the architect of the uh, EB-5 scandal, probably the biggest uh, political scandal in uh, in Vermont history. Uh, he went. He was convicted of bilking investors out of millions of dollars on a phony scheme to uh, to renovate Jay Peak to build uh, all sorts of new facilities in Newport. Uh, there's still a massive hole in the ground in Newport, I believe, uh, the remnants of that deal. Stanger was convicted. The investors have not been paid back. Stanger went to prison. Uh, he is now out by ruling of a federal judge. The United States attorney for the state of Vermont is not happy, uh, and Stanger is home. Now, let's bring this up. He's out of jail. Uh, but he, he is confined to his home. Uh, I suspect, and I don't know this, I suspect he's wearing an ankle bracelet, uh, where he is monitored by the United States parole office. Uh, so it's not like he's out, uh, going to bars, but, uh, there is home confinement, but he is out of a federal prison. And that brings up all sorts of issues. You know, should a guy that age be in prison? Uh, do we want to pay, uh, to house a guy like that in prison? Um, do we want to pay for his food, for his health care? Uh, it costs, and I don't have the figure in front of me, 
it costs uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars to house a guy like Bill Stanger in a federal prison. Why should we pay for that? Why don't we put him in his home, put an ankle bracelet around his leg and monitor him and make sure he doesn't have any, have any fun while the government makes sure that he tries to pay back as best he can the people that he wronged. That is an argument that some make. Um, I know that I know that others uh, make the same case. I mean, there are those, and I know Sarah George, the Chittenden County State's Attorney, and others, ACLU, they're coming around to the notion that, you know, we should barely have any prison at all. Uh, we had uh, an ACLU representative on the phone uh, saying, why we shouldn't be building these prisons. Why should we taxpayers... Uh, spend all this money building prisons to house people when they should be in the community uh, uh, making restitution to their victims and uh, and being rehabilitated. It's cheaper. Uh, it's more humane. Um, and it comes down to a very, you know, one of the issues here is vengeance, right? People who are wronged want the perpetrator of that wrong to go to prison and suffer. And uh, that's a tough one because making somebody go to prison and making them suffer for their crimes um, is expensive. And it's an issue that, uh, you know, I know state officials are dealing with it every day. Uh, the state of Vermont wants to, is thinking about, uh, maybe constructing a smallish uh, women's prison somewhere in this state. Uh, we had the ACLU on the show recently to say that's a bad idea. We should not be building new prison beds. We should be spending that money on drug rehabilitation, mental health care, etc., and community-based uh, justice restoration for the victims of these people's crimes. Um, the old way of building these giant cinder block uh, structures uh, is expensive and doesn't do the job. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. And we will, we will uh, continue to explore it. Uh, Governor Phil Scott does not like uh, what the, what the Democrats in the Vermont legislature are doing with regard to paid family leave and childcare. It's, uh, we are headed, as I said earlier, the Democratic, uh, party is headed for its own, uh, conflict over this bill, but eventually they're going to run into the governor. The governor doesn't like this bill. Uh, he thinks it's too expensive, costs too much, and, uh, he has his own plan, kind of a voluntary paid family leave plan. We'll see what happens. We'll be back with Bob Nay in a couple of minutes talking all things D.C. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We are back, and we're going to go to Washington, D.C., where our D.C. correspondent Bob Nay is joining us. Bob, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Okay. A lot to, a lot to go through here. I got a big smile on my face because the United States Congress, uh, 
while it fumbles with its cell phones and fails to understand even the basic technology uh, and needs to ask their grandchildren for help, uh, is trying to understand and is weighing in on the danger of TikTok to the American Republic. Right. And the Biden administration, uh, is separate from Congress, has said that if a certain company buys it, then they'd be comfortable. Otherwise, we're headed towards a ban. Well, we have a ban already. If you're a federal employee on using it, that came through the administration. Now Congress has gotten into it. And, of course, it was the CEO's turn for TikTok at the barrel yesterday. And uh, a couple of the members uh, made a statement if they could ban it today, they would. So looks like there'll be an effort towards banning it. Uh, the CEO is assuring people that, you know, this is not used for, quote, spying purposes. China has a clause where, for the interests of national security, they could acquire information. That's where this all started. Right. Uh, we, we talked before you came on, Bob, about, about, I mean, they don't have to look to TikTok and China to talk about, to deal with these threats. Uh, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg do almost exactly the same thing. Uh, the difference is right. that the, that our private information at Facebook probably doesn't fall into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but where, I guess my question to you is, where does this go? You're the expert on Congress. Where does this go politically? Do, does, does a bill get passed? Uh, what happens in the end? Well, they, they could do it several ways. They could let the administration do it through executive order. Congress likes to complain about executive orders unless it's something they like in right. an executive order. Right. So they, they could let the president do it. Uh, but in general, the Congress can pass a bill, and then they would say that the platform of TikTok, you know, cannot be operated in the United States for national security reasons. That's probably, I, I'd say, the easier thing that that they could do. They could also try to have the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, you know, uh, institute some type of rule. But I think probably passing a bill is something more likely they would do. And and it, it strikes me that this is an easy one for Republicans, but the issue is a little more complicated for Democrats, given that Joe Biden has to run a country and and deal with the Chinese on a regular basis. But right. It's an easy one for uh, for Republicans on TikTok. Well, I think it is because it's China. Anything to do with China these days, of course, it has been that way since about 2016. Anything to do with China is very, very complicated. Even if it's genuine, it's complicated just because of the implications of China, what they do, how they run their country. They take our jobs. I mean, you and I could go down a whole show full of lists of things you know people are angry about with China. You made a really good point, by the way, about the Facebook platform. And you know, call me paranoid, but I will I will message something to a friend of mine. Uh, a friend of mine was asking me about watches and I messaged back, you know, on Messenger about watches. And the next thing I know, watches for sale are ads are popping up on my Facebook. Yeah. So yeah, let's 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 be really clear about it. It's it's just what it is, and 
we have no one to blame for our, but ourselves. Uh, you know, we, we could, we, the FCC or the FTC or Congress or the White House could do something about this, but, uh, it gets complicated. Um, okay. I, Bob, I gotta read you something, uh, with regard to what I called at the top of the show, the non-arrest of former President Donald Trump. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, issued a dire warning about the consequences of being indicted, predicting, quote, potential death and destruction, unquote, that could be, quote, catastrophic for our country if he is charged with a crime in the Stormy Daniels hush money case. And he added, only a degenerate sociopath that truly hates the USA would indict him. So uh, what do you make of that? Well, it's a political, you know, statement and a comeback. I think that they need to be careful about inciting violence. Uh, I mean, really careful about that. Uh, number two, if he is indicted and crowds don't turn out, he's going to be kind of, I would say, probably a bit disappointed in a sense, but they've got to be very careful he does that, again, there's no violence. The United States, uh, and I don't know what's going to happen. There might be an indictment. John Edwards ran for vice president, spent a million dollars paying for a child he had out of wedlock, and the feds brought a charge and everything, you know, at the end he was acquitted. So that could happen to Trump, too. I think it's important that that the justice system as it proceeds, whether somebody thinks it's fair or not, that it does do that. It proceeds without being, you know, inhibited again, even if people think it's, it's not fair. The other thing about the United States is one way or the other, I mean, we will survive. We could survive and we've survived impeachments. We've survived, you know, a lot of things. We could survive a sitting president, uh, leaving office. We did that with Nixon. So I don't think the country, uh, if the president's indicted, I mean, it's going to be surreal. It'll be historic. It'll be precedent-setting. But I think the United States survives, frankly, no matter what happens, uh, if we look back at our history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and lastly, Bob, um, the... The, uh, the the January sixth uh, rioter that uh, that stole Nancy Pelosi's laptop has been sentenced to thirty six months in prison. Uh, Riley June Williams of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, sentenced for interfering with law enforcement officers during a civil disorder and resisting or impeding law enforcement officers, both felonies. Uh, we are still dealing with the aftermath of January 6th and will be for some time, won't we? Well, we will because there are still hundreds of cases not resolved. Now, if some of the sentences come out a bit stern, I have always argued there'll be a lot of plea deals that will come after that because that's how the system runs. As far as, um, as far as her case, I frankly thought it was a bit of a light sentence only because if you dig into that uh, that further, she was attempting, and her friend turned her in. She was attempting to sell the laptop to Russia, so that that conjures up the word espionage, you know, because it was the speaker's office laptop. So I was really honestly surprised that her sentence was only uh, thirty six months. But what? yes, there are more cases to come. And to adjudicate or plea deals or whatever happens with it. These are the high profile 
cases. You know, the guy with the with the horns and the hat and uh, yeah. and her because uh, the laptop came from the speaker's office, which is a federal owned laptop from you know one of the leaders. And again, she tried to sell it, reached out to try to sell it to Russia. Boy, <laughs> <laughs> trying to make some money to pay college tuition. I don't know. Sorry, sorry to laugh, Bob. Um, the American justice system, uh, flawed as it is, uh, it is really going to be put to a stress test here with whatever happens with former President Trump on the Stormy Daniels payments, on the stealing of classified documents to Mar-a-Lago and January 6th, and then all of these January 6th, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. And put your put yourself in the chair of Attorney General Merrick Garland, um, who strikes me as a guy who goes by the book, uh, but is no stranger to the the reality of the way the the politics of right. this all has to go down. Uh, but it's a stress test for the uh, the Justice Department and the criminal justice system. No. Yes, you're correct. It is. Uh... Of course, I have my own run-ins with the Justice Department, so I'm pretty aware how they operate. Well, they operate differently under different attorney generals, but in general, you know, how they pursue things and cases. And in Merrick Garland's uh, case, we have to remember he did not indict Trump over Stormy Daniels on a federal charge. Correct. And I think that's because of the precedent of John Edwards, who, as we talked earlier, you know, his charges uh, were, were – he was acquitted. So – the feds decide not to move in. Now, the, and this is a little bit of politics, although we all, we love to think that there's no politics in Supreme Court or Justice Department, but, and I, and I think you made a great observation. Garland's considered, he does run things by the book. A lot of people, um, on the Democratic side are angry at him. They think he should have invited Trump. But here's the problem with the classified documents, which is under his, uh, you know, uh, his jurisdiction. Classified documents, you've now got Biden, you've got Pence, Bush, I think, had one, you know, whoever. And so it presents a real problem. I don't think anything will come of that on the on the uh, federal level. So Merrick Garland has a decision to make internally. They have a public section, as they call it, which deals with public officials. And he still will have the last call no matter what his section says. So it's going to be a tough call uh, in a sense for him because he's going to get heat either way. But I don't think he, I don't think he does anything on the classified documents. Fascinating. That's just fascinating. Bob Nay, as always, uh, enlightening and interesting. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next Friday. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Okay. Thank you. We're going to take a break. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. And lucky for us, we've got Chelsea Edgar from Seven Days on the phone because we've got to pull apart this motel uh, situation. Here's the story. Uh, during COVID, uh, when people had nowhere to stay, uh, the state of Vermont put people and paid motel owners across the state millions to house people experiencing homelessness and those who had nowhere to go. And... And our friend Chelsea has uncovered the fact that millions are uh, in security deposits are not being returned 
to their rightful owners. Chelsea Edgar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Okay. Did I explain that correctly? <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> I think you got it. So, as always, as a Seven Days fan, I read it online, and then I go and read it in the paper just to make sure I get the whole thing. Uh, I ha- Well, why don't we start from the beginning? Why don't you explain to the audience exactly what's happening here? Sure. So um, during COVID, the state housed uh, thousands of Vermonters in hotels, um, and this began um, when people were uh, when, when you know the state wanted to um, uh, keep people you know apart. That shelters are not great for social distancing, um, and so that's how this all began. And um, you know, in the in the first couple years of the pandemic, it really helped avoid some of the worst outcomes, um, you know, for, for the um, unhoused folks who were in the, in the motel program. Um, and the state did this with uh, federal money, lots of federal money, um, pandemic relief funds. And so um, the state has kept this program going um, in, in one form or another since March 2020. Um, the most recent iteration of the program, which the state called the Transitional Housing Program, was designed to uh, function a little bit like a sort of rental arrangement. So um, in uh, when when a household entered a motel um, in, you know, in July of 2022, or, you know, maybe they were already staying in a motel, um, but in July of 2022, the motel occupant signed a contract with the owners of the motel. Um, and the contract included a, a clause that stated that, um, if the person stayed in the motel for four months or more, they would be entitled to collect the $3,300 security deposit that the state had paid the hotel on that person's behalf. And if they stayed less than four months, then the motel was supposed to return that $3,300 security deposit to the state uh, minus any damages. Um, but what the state didn't do and what the rules explicitly uh, say is that um, the Department of Children and Families, which administers the program, would not get involved uh, in a security deposit dispute between a motel occupant uh, and an owner. Um, so, so they sort of, um, you know, absolved themselves of responsibility essentially for for dealing with that. Um, and what it also didn't do was, um, you know, include any sort of um, of stipulations that would ensure that the money that was intended for residents um, would actually get to them. So they didn't require that motel owners put these deposits in escrow, for instance, um, or, you know, set them aside. Um, and, you know, they also, the state didn't create any sort of uh, sanctions, impose any sanctions on motel owners for not upholding their end of the contract. Um, and I think what's important here, just the big picture um, the state has spent since the, the since the spring of 2020 more than 180 million dollars on the motel housing program. The security deposits represent a small sliver of that money. It's about six million dollars. Um, but what's crucial is that you know a, a significant portion of that money um, was intended, in theory, to help people leaving motels get on their feet. Um, and then didn't really um, create any mechanisms to ensure that that would actually happen. And so um, most of that money and most of the money that the state has spent on the motel program 
has ended up in uh, the hands of private motel owners. Um, and so I think that was sort of the, the focus of my story was just looking at um, how much money some of these motels has made and, um, you know, and, and in some cases really um, taken advantage of the state's willingness to do business at practically any cost because, um, you know, there are the, the number of unhoused people has been growing since the start of the pandemic and the state has become um, dependent on motels to to house folks. And the and you highlight the case of a motel owner named Anil Zadev, who's the owner of the Quality uh, that, Inn that, in that, Brattleboro, that, that, but that yeah, but also he is the uh, owner of the Hilltop in the infamous Hilltop Motel in in Berlin, among many other hotels. It's not like this guy is a one-off. Uh, motel scofflaw down in Brattleboro. The guy has motels all over the state. No, and what I found was that um, he has an ownership stake in. Um, uh, I was able to find at least seven uh, motels in Vermont, um, in which he's a, a principal, um, and uh, those those hotels all house Vermonters through this program. Um, but what was surprising. Um, of the of so since April, the state has spent 60 million um, on the motel program as a whole, and that includes some 70 motels. And uh, Satchdev's properties have collectively brought in nearly 20 million since July. So that is you know a, about a third of the state's total spending on the program. Um, so that's a significant amount of money. Um, okay, I don't usually do this, but I'm going to let Brian uh, from Brookfield call in with a question on this subject. Brian, you're on with Chelsea Edgar. Go ahead. Good morning, folks. Um, this is Brian in Brookfield, and I um, became a victim of the COVID and ended up at the Hilltop Hotel last winter um, until this past January, and I experienced the uh, deposit thing. The the guy, Dave, who was O'Neill's brother, was ruthless. And um, I ended up getting $1,000 back, but he said that my service dog had uh, made tears in the carpet and, and all this stuff that never even happened. And... So if that was the case, why wouldn't he have to change? He said, and he told me this. He had to replace the carpet, and he had to do this, and he had to do that. And as soon as I was gone, the next day he had somebody right in that room and never did a thing to it. And I know it for a fact. Brian, and, Brian, we've only got limited time with Chelsea, but do me a favor. Keep listening to the show because after she leaves, I'm going to give you – a way to contact your legislator because I know that the legislature is going to deal with this. I'll put you in touch with your legislature, but legislator, but thank you for the call. Chelsea, this sounds like uh, a pattern. It totally does. Yeah. What, what Brian just described um, is, it sounds a lot like the stories that I heard while reporting this. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a common pattern. You know, one of the, I, I spoke with a, a former, resident of the Quality Inn in Brattleboro, which is another one of Satchdev's properties. Um, and this woman had, um, she lived there and, um, you know, this, this arrangement, which wasn't uncommon there, in addition to living there, she also worked at the hotel 
And um, she told me, uh, you know, very similar things that um, that the the owners and the management uh, would blame the the tenants for damage to the rooms that existed before they got there. Um, And then they would then use that as a reason to not put money back into the property. Um, and so a lot of the issues in many of the rooms and, you know, both you know, people acknowledge that, you know, yeah, there are some guests who damage their rooms and that does happen. Um, but, you know, from what I have, what I've found in my reporting, it seems like the, in the majority of cases, there's damage to rooms that um, is really the result of a lack of maintenance, you know, um, a, uh, you know, mold problems. And, uh, you know, lots of, uh, you know, broken, broken heaters. That was a pretty common problem. Um, bed bug infestation, you know, and so, um, that really comes down to a lack of investment. Um, and because of the way the system is set up, there's, there's really no incentive for owners like Satchdev to put money back into their properties. The, the incentive is to have, um, a steady flow of, of guests who are, are there on the state's dime. Um, and uh, it's it's been a, a lucrative business model for them. Uh, and you write about the Berlin police chief having trouble uh, dealing with the, the problems at the hilltop, both with the owner and the residents there. Boy, this just won't go away, will it? It's a really complicated problem. I think, you know, as as um, Chief Pompran, the uh, police chief of Berlin, told me, you know, it's a it is a burden for uh, a municipality, um, you know, that the folks living in motels often have, um, you know, mental health and substance use issues. And there just isn't a lot of support. Um, you know, these motels are uh, not <laughs> motel owners are, are not in the in the business of being social service providers. There are social service providers who uh, come into the motels and work with clients there, but that's different from being sort of a, a, a fully set up, um, you know, shelter or, uh, you know, like a true transitional housing arrangement where you would have services on site um, and uh, management who, you know, presumably understands that that's their mission. Um, but, but here we have, we have people working at cross purposes. You know, you have, private business owners um, whose uh, incentive is to make money and um, the state desperately needs rooms. And so there's a sort of uh, dependency there that I think uh, has, has created some, some pretty big problems, Um, you know, and, and folks like Brian, um, there's just not a lot of recourse for them if they complain to DCF or economic services about the security deposit. Um, In most cases, they'll be referred to legal services and so their only option is to uh, file a small claim suit, and that can be an incredibly uh, that's just a, that's just a very uh, onerous thing for a currently or um, recently homeless person to do. Yeah, I think the attorney general has to look at this. Uh, you, you know, I'm thinking, sitting here thinking about where does the buck stop? And obviously, DCF has an impossible task, but. Uh, I think the new attorney general uh, is going to be concerned about this. Chelsea Edgar, as always, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Please deliver our greetings as always to your boss, Paula Routley, an old friend, and tell her the open invitation to come on this show stands as always, and she (laughs) refuses. I'm trying to shame (laughs) her into coming on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. You too. Bye.
We'll be back. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back. Okay, I've got a message for Anson Tebbets at For the Birds. I know he's not listening because he's the Secretary of Agriculture, but there isn't a lot of action going on at my bird feeder, as he says in that ad. You know why? Because my bird feeder is under the snow. Now, the rain t- yesterday and today and warming temperatures may reveal my bird feeder, but it's under the snow. So, Anson, I, you know, you're not helping me out here. Uh, I will, I've taken to spreading bird seed on top of the snowbank to attract birds. That's, that's how pathetic my situation is. Okay. Got that off my chest. Welcome to Open Phones Friday, uh, where we're going to talk about, I, Brian from Brookfield. I've got one piece of housekeeping. Uh, you called in about this motel fraud that's going on and Chelsea Edgar's great story in seven days. So, Brian, if you're listening, your representative is a guy named Jay Hooper. Okay. He, re- he serves in the house, uh, and he is, uh, lives in Randolph and he represents Brookfield. And here's his number, 802-828-2228. And you can call there. That's the legislature's number and they will take a message to Jay Hooper and he will call you back. All right. Now we took care of that did some democracy. Now we're going to do some more democracy with a surprise guest, uh, the original host of this show, the one and only Mark Johnson. Welcome. Well, I, I'm sure Jay Hooper really appreciated you, uh, you, you, you doing that. And I have a bone to pick with Anson Debits too. Good. I mean, what is the big deal about doing some radio show for 25 years? Yeah. I know. Bunch of losers. I mean, it's, you know, two and a half decades. I mean, that's, that's not that big a deal. It's actually a great, it's a great show. It's a really great show. Oh, yeah. The lady's still doing it. But I do owe Anson a uh, big thank you because, um, as you know, and maybe some of your listeners don't know, I've been teaching a basic journalism class at Champlain College this semester, which has been a lot of fun. And one of my students did a, Great piece about the effect of on farmers of daylight savings time. Ah. And if you think about it, um, you know, uh, the cows don't really wear watches and need to be fed at their usual time. And they don't really care what the clock says. Uh, and answer was really helpful to a, a student of mine who wrote a really good piece about how this affects the, you know, the farming and agriculture community. So, um, uh, there's a, there's a criticism and a compliment. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Mark, to get, before we get to, um, the tough stuff, uh, I noticed that it is, uh, not, not exactly the anniversary of Act 250, 
and the famous billboard law, but it's pretty close. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That, that, that spurs. Really claim, yeah. Um, yeah. Among old yeah, people Ted like really us, that spurs a lot of discussion. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, one of the real treats of my life is that I got to know Ted really pretty well, more in his later years than when he was in the legislature, but. I um, remember seeing at his house the picture of him the day that Phil Hoff um, signed that piece of legislation, which I would argue is probably one of the top five pieces of legislation that's happened in Vermont. I mean, the fact that we're able to drive up and down the highways of Vermont uh, and not see these enormous billboards to this day is just really what a treat. I, my my wife and I drove down to um, Boston last weekend, and you know it's it's just it's litter on the side of the roads. I mean, you, every one eight hundred um, call a lawsuit is everywhere else in the country, and you hit really New Hampshire too. It's pretty pretty free of it, but you get to the Vermont border, and you almost take this deep breath of fresh air that you don't have to put up with this. And I think it was 1969, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, tip of the hat to Ted really, who's unfortunately no longer with us. Phil Hoff signed the, the legislation, and it really, to this day, I mean, the fact that you're able to maintain that um, is pretty remarkable. You know, Act 250, I really don't know as much about the history, and it, it's kind of changed a little bit over time. It hasn't really it hasn't really stayed, you know, the the exact same the way the billboard right. law has. But yeah, I mean, again, something that just you know probably would be also in that top five. But that well, billboard law, I mean, we we don't know how lucky we are. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. God, when I go visit my mother in New Jersey, there is nothing like coming home oh. and crossing that border. It is a physical uh, thing that happens to you when you don't see, and you just wonder why other states. Don't do the same thing. Well, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And, you know, all those – why is it that all of those lawsuit law firms always seem to have, you know, three guys um, (laughs) up there on the – I know. Really quite something. Especially along the New Jersey Turnpike. I agree with you. Um, Mahoney, Mahoney, and Mahoney. You know, it's, it's, it's all, they're all basically the same firm, I think. It, it, but the, it's interesting to me, uh, the, uh, uh, in our, uh, desperate attempt to build more housing and to build more affordable housing, uh, we've got an argument going on, and I want to get to this within the Democratic Party, between those Democrats that want to build more housing in designated downtowns and then those Democrats and environmentalists who say if you do it too f- – and those housing proponents want to uh, exempt those projects from Act 250 because there's already local zoning, for instance, in Burlington. Uh, and the environmentalists, as always, are fighting back and saying it's going to lead to sprawl. Uh, you guys want to weaken Act 250, and it's the only thing that keeps Vermont the way it has been for the last, gen- you know, many generations. Uh, there's a conflict coming in the Democratic Party over housing, and it's coming very fast. Well, you know, when you have a supermajority like that, isn't that inevitable? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if you've been to. I don't know if you've been to Williston lately, but, you know, I just am, am amazed at the 
growth in Williston in the past, you know, 20 years when, uh, you know, the efforts of the city of Burlington to keep um, Pyramid Mall out of out of Williston and maintain the downtown Burlington as the commercial center. And now the, you know, this great irony that Williston is, you know, where the mall is, is basically um, a city. Yeah. And, you know, with its own sidewalks, roads, I mean, you, you can literally, and I'm not being facetious here, you can get lost in there. Yeah. And then, you know, on the other hand, you've got downtown Burlington where the mall is now the high school. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a little bit of an upside down situation. Yeah. Um, so before the break, stay with the high school situation for a minute. I know that you folks in Burlington have, are bonding for a huge amount of money to build a new high school. Uh, I read this story in seven days yesterday that from Cabot to schools all over the state, this PCB issue in schools – uh, you've got one com- – the House Education Committee saying we're going to put off testing for these PCBs. Uh, the Senate is yeah. saying we've got to do it. I mean this is – it almost makes you feel like you got to bulldoze every school that was built in the 50s before we knew better. And that's a big price tag. Well, you're – yeah, I mean I think you're making a good point. You know, Burlington High School was built around the same time that a lot of these schools were built. And using the best technology we had at the time, I mean, you know, it's a little rich. Um, you know, I think it's a $150 million bond here in Burlington. I sort of closed my eyes and covered them with my right hand and <laughs> with my left hand said yes. Yeah. Because, you know, on the one hand, it's really difficult to have a community the size of Burlington, at least. Uh, that doesn't have a high school. I mean, it, it's really, it's almost like a human missing an arm or a leg. I mean, you, if you want to attract people to live in Burlington, you know, you need to have a high school. Yeah. Uh, you know, you got South Burlington, which is also looking at a huge renovation. I mean, I, I was thinking at one point, well, maybe we could somehow figure out a way to combine the two. I, I don't know. But, you know, what, what's really, I think, just the height of hypocrisy is this whole idea now of, well, let's not test places like Cabot. It reminds me of what's going on with the coronavirus, where we decide, oh, the pandemic's over and we stop testing or we stop at least producing the results of the test. Ergo, um, nobody's getting sick anymore. And I don't know about you, but I know more people in the past six weeks who've had COVID, uh, certainly as many as, as early on in the pandemic. It is really still out there. Yeah. It's not as bad. I don't think there's many people hospitalized or, but I, you know, I, my department head at Champlain, very ill for a week. I know people that have had it now two, multiple times. So, you know, this idea of not testing as a way to deal with a problem is burying your head in the sand. Yeah. Okay. I need to take a break. Uh, we have, the phones are lighting up with uh, old callers that that want to talk to you, but I really want to talk to you about Bill Stanger and EB5 after the break. It's Vermont Viewpoint. We're talking to Mark Johnson, the host of the the former host of the The Mark Johnson Show on WDV. We'll be right back. We're back and. 
We're taking phone calls. Uh, and we have a, a special guest in Mark Johnson, the former host of this show. Rama in Williamstown, you're on the line with Mark. Keep it short. Happy Friday. Yeah, okay. I'll be real quick here. And this is about the Act 250 housing development stuff. I'm a huge fan of Act 250. However, I think we need to revisit all that permitting process with a change in view from how to control development, which is what Act 250 was meant to do, to how to absorb the changes that are coming our way, which we can't control. So no magical borders for Fair enough. So. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. 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 Um, Rama, nice to hear from you. Long time um, no talk to. Yeah, I I think that's fair. I mean, I think something like the billboard law, you know, it's either you either have it or you don't. Um, Act 250 does need to evolve and change over time. I mean, it's a it's a living, breathing document, as they sometimes say. Okay, Uh, Mark. The biggest scandal in Vermont history with a guy named Bill Stenger, the former head of Jay Peak Ski Resort, among other projects, man of the year of the Vermont Chamber of Commerce, friend to governors of both parties, uh, once thought to be the guy who was going to lead the economic development restoration of the Northeast Kingdom, uh, went to prison. I believe the sentence was 18 months, and now he is out. What do you think about that? A um, couple of thoughts. I, I, I think um, I think a lot of people were surprised when uh, Bill Stenger was sentenced to only 18 months. Um, now he pled guilty to one charge. He falsified a, a document, uh, and I know you know you and I have been going back and forth about Trump and his hush money to his stripper friend. But, you know, these kinds of prosecutions, you know, Al Capone, tax evasion, it usually isn't about the – what they get charged with is just one piece of the puzzle. You know, Bill Stenger uh, and Ariel Quiros and a couple of other people were involved in a, you know, a fraud unlike we've ever seen. I I covered a case in the 1980s. I don't know if you remember this, but Steady Fuels. Um, and these, it was a father-son team that were shorting their clients where they'd show up at your house and instead of delivering 150 gallons, they'd, develop, they'd, they'd deliver 50 and sell the, the other 100 that they diverted to somebody else. I mean, it's six-figure kind of fraud. Both father and son sentenced to five years each in jail, okay? So you have Ariel Quiros, who really I think most people consider to be the – lead figure, but, you know, Bill Stenger was right there. Bill Stenger, you know, is a charming man. I've had a number of very, you know, wonderful conversations with him over the years. I I think he was a well-meaning guy trying to do what he could for the Northeast Kingdom. But for him to claim that he was an unknowing pawn in this is just, I'm sorry, but that's just, that's, that's laughable. Yeah. If he didn't know what was going on, he damn well should have. And I don't buy it. He's he's a he's too bright a guy to have not known what's going on. So, you know, he you know should have been kissing the ground. Um, lucky that he only got eighteen months. Getting out in nine. Now I don't know. You know, I read Alan Keyes' story. I don't know what home confinement means. Yeah. You know, his son 
put on Facebook that they were going to go to the drive-in at Mickey D's to get fries. I guess you can do that maybe on the way home. Right. Um, but I don't know what his day-to-day free, quote-unquote freedom is. So that that's, to me, an unknown. But for the prosecutor, in this case, to now be steamed about this, I just, I again, I find that the hypocrisy on that pretty high. They did not push for a very strong sentence. We all know that when you go to jail, you don't serve the full term. Usually, I, my recollection is it's usually about two-thirds or maybe a little bit more. Right. So this is definitely early. But for the prosecutor to be, you know, whining about this, they they should have been pushing for, you know, based on what happened. I mean, let's remember that the last project, he and Quiros raised 80 million bucks from 160 foreign investors. Now, half a million bucks for some of these people, they begged, borrowed and did whatever they had to do to try to get a green card to come to this country. I mean, uh, you know, I think about half of them got their green card. Most of them never got their money back. Right. So, you know, this is a lot of money that we're, we're talking about, a lot of money. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was how, you know, when the prosecutor the other day, when Mr. Stinger went home, said he was steamed. I mean, they lobbed in this, you know, grenade where they said how, um, you know, Bill Stenger had been part of a group that, quote, when he stole millions of dollars from his investors. Now, I thought it was well established that Ariel Quiroz, his partner, had diverted off, siphoned off about 50 million bucks of the hundreds of millions that they raised. But I thought Bill Stenger adamantly and the prosecution had agreed that, yeah, he was paid a salary to do what he did. Yeah. He could have made money down the road, but my recollection is he was never accused until the other day of directly stealing money and and the way Quiros was. So I, there there are a couple of real sort of interesting parts of this story that I'll be interested to see if anybody follows up and pursues for just for example that line of questioning. Yeah, I think there's going to be some more documents coming out in this that I hope Digger and uh, and. Uh... Alan Keyes come up with. And then, of course, there's we, we had a call at the top of the show from a fella, I believe, in Brookfield in the car who said he wished Stenger uh, was buried underneath the prison, not in put in a jail cell, along with Peter Shumlin and everybody else, because those investors got ripped off. Um, what do you make of the gov- well, governor I mean, Peter Shumlin's yeah. legacy on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, and I'm I'm I, I this is what I think happened on that. And I think um, Mike Pichak, who's now the treasurer, who is the head of the Department of Financial Regulation, said he, he did not agree when they lifted the restriction to raise more money. Yeah. There were going to be a group of people here that got screwed one way or another. There were eight, there were eight projects. This finally got stopped on the eighth project. I think the state officials knew at about stage six or seven and I think, you know, I think what, what they tried to do, and it was ridiculous, they thought they could almost outrun the Ponzi. So, you know, you were either going to shut it down and shaft the people in, in stage seven or stage six. But instead, you know, they raised more money for the bio project. And what basically what was happening is that project eight would pay, project seven would pay for 
Project 6 and Project 8 was going to pay for 7. That's how a Ponzi scheme runs, that you would raise more money and pay back the, inve- the previous investors. You know, um, hindsight is twenty twenty. The, the, the state knew back in 2015 when I started working at Digger what was going on. Right. I mean, you know, so, uh, yeah, there's some complicity there. I'm not really sure what their options were. Um, but, you know, again, uh, you know, Bill Stinger, I think, was very clever and smart to try to toss some of the blame state officials way. I'd have done the same thing, too. Yeah. Uh, you want to take the heat off of yourself. But for him to claim that, you know, he was this sort of he was duped somehow. Oh, my gosh. I mean, really? Wow. Mark Johnson, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Anytime I can be your, you know, fill in, just let me know. <laughs> That's our show. You can email me at vtviewpointradiovermont.com if you want to be a guest or suggest a topic. Uh, this becomes a podcast. Uh, so go to WDEVradio.com and click on podcast button and listen. Uh, be sure to tune in next Wednesday. We're going to talk about afford, uh, the uh, paid family leave bill, but we're then going to talk to Waterbury's own George Woodard, farmer, filmmaker, musician, and storyteller. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. You can find me at KevinKLS.com. I'll be back Wednesday talking politics and films. Our show is directed, produced, and engineered and managed by the master, Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here on Wednesday on VT Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.